0: Zealand Initiative Podcast. I'm Michael Johnston. I'm joined today by our Chief Economist Eric and our Executive Director, Oliver. Good to have you with us. Hi Michael. Hey. Now we thought we might talk about Europe. There's been a few developments there in the last week or so, including new developments in the Ukraine war and some developments on the energy front as well, as and also some political changes. So Perhaps, Oliver, you could summarise for our listeners what some of those things are.
1: Oh dear, where do we even start? So after more than half a year of the Ukraine war, Putin has now mobilised 300,000 soldiers and young Russians are trying to leave and escape the country because they don't want to serve in this futile, unjust war. We had three explosions, it seems, at the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea, that can't be an accident, it, it cannot be a collision, it really points to some kind of state terrorism, probably a submarine putting some explosives there and just blowing the whole thing up. Then we had Italian elections, we have the most right-wing government, most likely since the end of World War II since the end of fascism, actually led by a post-fascist or previous fascist or whatever you want to call her, in a coalition of right-wing parties from kind of center-right to populist-right to extreme-right. And that will be quite a challenge, not least for the European Union, but also for Italy and um, Italian 10-year bond yields have already spiked to 4.6%, which is about 2.5% higher than it was about a year ago. So there are plenty of developments in Europe, and on top of all of that, of course, there's the ongoing energy crisis in Central Europe, especially in Germany, because energy costs, electricity prices, gas prices are spiking, and households, really ordinary households, are looking at energy bills that are suddenly going up by sometimes more than a €1,000 a month. So it is a a never-ending crisis in Europe this year, and it's not going to get any better. It's probably going to get worse over the winter. It's hard to see how it could get better
0: with increasing energy requirements in, in the cold. But let's take those things one at a time. So this mobilisation of, what, 300,000 Russian soldiers, do you think that's a, a political move? What, what's behind it? Why is Putin doing this?
1: Well, I think it's obviously an act of desperation because the troops are depleted. They are massive losses for the Russians in the war. And they need to find replacement soldiers, and it's it's not easy, of course. There's the other development, of course. There are fake referenda Mm. in occupied uh, territories, and that is an act of psychological warfare because the new Russian military doctrine is now that they would be prepared to use nukes to defend their territory. As soon as they have annexed more of Ukraine's territory and the fighting goes on, technically the Russians will say this is an attack on their own soil, and therefore they would be justified in using tactical nuclear weapons. So there's been a lot of discussion in the last few weeks uh, what that would mean, what the response of the West would be, how America would respond, probably not in kind, but I I read seemingly well-informed newspaper articles discussing that that would actually lead to an all-around cyber attack on Russia that the Americans have already threatened. So many developments and all very unsettling. I mean the very thought of now Potentially using a nuclear weapon in this conflict is just something we would have not expected until just a few months ago.
0: Indeed. And the developments with the pipelines, the, the destruction of, of those Nord Stream gas pipes, it's hard for me to see how it's really to the Russians' advantage to have done that because they, they've sacrificed a bargaining
1: chip, haven't they? No, probably not. I think in all realism, we wouldn't have seen any gas flow through these pipelines in the foreseeable future. The Russians had already reduced that because they wanted to really cause a very cold winter for Central Europe. So Russia wasn't actually interested in supplying war gas. And the Europeans, the Western Europeans, they tried to get out of that gas dependency, of course, on Russia. So they wanted to get that down to zero too, perhaps not quite as fast as the Russians. Mm But now that Russia has realized that the main value actually is in destroying these pipelines as another shock sent to Western energy markets, I think that's what they did. But of course, at the moment, we have absolutely no proof who it was. It could be all sorts of things. There was speculation that it might have been an attack even by Ukrainian forces to cut the West's dependence on Russian gas. I think that's spurious, of course. More realistically, I think the country with the... Most interest in this, and perhaps the best capability, is Russia. And it's not ha- easy to do, by the way. We're talking about pipelines that are about 90 meters deep. Yes, You can't reach them properly with divers to install some explosive there because it would be way too um, dangerous to do it that way. So this is an operation that is most likely carried out by a submarine. There were no signs or no detections of submarines in the area, but that doesn't mean anything because it could have actually... Happened weeks ago that the submarine actually switched off all its electronic systems, basically made itself undiscoverable, planted these bombs in and then waited for a moment. Or it could have even been from a commercial ship in disguise, basically, putting these bombs there. And it's actually quite hard to blow them up because we're talking about pipelines that are extremely secure. You talk about pipelines that are about three centimeters thick in steel and then encased by concrete. So you can't accidentally just damage them like that, and certainly not three at once within a space of 24 hours. So this really looks like a military operation.
0: It yeah. is hard to see how the Ukrainians could have, could have done it, to, since they don't even have a Baltic port. But well,
1: e- exactly. I mean, uh, but there was speculation that was, of course, planted. I think in all likelihood, it was the Russians themselves.
2: It means that we've got a little bit more certainty of what happens over the winter, right? So we know that European energy markets are crazy. I didn't know what was going to break first, when that all happened, if it is going to be economic collapse that leads to political pressure around reopening pipelines and maybe seeking peace with Russia, that path is now pretty cut off because no matter what they do, they, they're not going to be able to get the, get the gas back. So that kind of strengthens well support for, for Ukraine through the mess that's going to be coming. It's just horrible to start thinking through what the implications of all this are going to be like. I, I've mm-hmm. been... I'd had a column earlier this week on monetary policy issues and inflation. But just imagine yourself in the position of the Reserve Bank right now. Your inflation, this will come back to Russia and Europe, but inflation targeting is over the medium term, right? It's not about what inflation is now. It's about what economic conditions are going to be like over the next one to three years and trying to target inflation over that medium term. But that requires having some view about what economic conditions are going to be. How do we even start thinking about the supply chain shocks that are going to be coming out of Europe when they can't afford to make glass anymore, when all kinds of industrial production starts falling apart because energy prices have gone through the roof? Like with kind of normal shocks, well, some low value activity stops happening and the highest valued uses still get what production is left But you're starting to hit sort of shutdown points for entire factories, and then it's not just going to be sort of the low-value stuff that gets knocked out, it'll be kind of everything.
1: It is kind of everything. In Germany, they are stopping production processes left, right, and center. It goes from bakeries, because they can't afford their energy anymore. All the supplies, by the way, are also going up, so wheat has become a lot more expensive. Almonds, I read from some bakers, have become ridiculously expensive, so... Just to give you an idea, there was a bakery chain, small chain, just two bakeries in Cologne. They used to have €2,500 for electricity per month. They now had 11000 and they declared bankruptcy after 90 years. And that's a bakery, okay. But there are many bakeries like that, and it goes all the way to glass production, to Chemical processes to steel production. ArcelorMittal, the world's largest steel maker, has actually stopped production in Germany. It's just no longer feasible. Not to but mention fertilizer, right? Fertilizer, exactly. Yep. So it's all coming together. Every single industry that you read about in the German newspapers is now basically having apocalyptic visions that by Christmas they are all bankrupt. And Every day there is a new open letter from some kind of industry. So I've seen open letters now from the bakery business. I've seen open letters from bottling businesses because they can't afford carbon anymore. There's a carbon shortage in Germany, so you can't actually carbonize your drinks anymore. The Brewers Guild has um, issued the same kind of statement. It is right through industry. Every industry is basically in crisis and every industry is now asking, can you please bail us out? The problem is, of course, the problem is so massive. You cannot bail them out. No. And by the way, it wouldn't be an option anyway to compensate them for their higher energy prices. The problem is the gas is not there. You can't compensate people to the point where they are basically just as well as they were before the gas crisis was because you, that doesn't create the gas. The gas is simply not there. It has to be rationed in some way.
2: Yes, so you've got terrible choices for government about whether they want, like, it will turn into political allocations of energy. They're not going to let this run through the price system. And they're going to then have terrible choices between whether they're making people unemployed or making people freeze.
1: And the structure will be different. The structure of the economy at the end of this crisis, we could actually see a lot of companies completely disappear and yeah. die. It could lead to a massive process of deindustrialization.
0: And it comes on the back of existing disruption from the pandemic.
1: They are exactly. I mean, these, these companies had already used a lot of their reserves in the last couple of years. They are not in a position where they could deal with that now. And actually, when you read um, the German press these days, I've seen more than once references to the Morgenthau plan. You know, that was the plan after forty-five, where Morgenthau wanted to deindustrialize Germany, turned it into an agrarian society, and that seems to be one way of achieving that now.
0: An, an agrarian society of eighty million people sounds ambitious.
1: <laughs> yes. No, it is, it is. It is absolutely depressing what you read uh, about that. There is no good way out. The next few months will be catastrophic. Yes.
2: Yeah. From a few months ago, you could have started thinking about if you dedicated everything to it. Maybe there'd still be some options. There was neat stuff going on in research in sort of small modular nuclear reactors. Maybe there. Maybe if you pulled out all the stops and did kind of like a Liberty Liberty Ships project, where you just Massive industrial planning, kind of force everything into energy production. Maybe you could have gotten a whole pile of new energy generation on in time for winter, but, but what but the hell did they do from where they are?
1: They didn't prepare. Um they only just today announced that two of the remaining three nuclear reactors will now be allowed to operate fully until April. I mean, seriously, that is not going to cut it. Um I, and, and some of the stuff that they're doing in preparation looks almost comical. So the city of Rosenheim distributed a leaflet to all households informing them what to do for uh, about a blackout, how to prepare for a blackout. And the first line in that brochure, which was a little pamphlet, was you should treat this like a 14-day camping holiday ah, at home.
0: In the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. So
1: basically, just stock up on stuff and get a kind of a gas burner if you can find one. And, and the other reactions, I mean, some of the stuff, as I said, almost comical. The Germans, in preparation for the gas shortage, have now bought 600,000 electrical heaters. You know, the the fans basically blowing hot air. That could actually be a real problem for the electricity grid because the grid is not made for that, for 600,000 electrical heaters running for hours in the middle of winter at night at the same time. Ironically, it might actually increase Germany's gas consumption because to even power them, you have to burn more gas in in the power stations. And that actually reinforces the whole gas shortage and makes the system even less stable. So... There are problems on every corner.
0: This advice you're talking about reminds me of the 1950s advice for what to do in the event of nuclear attack. You know, Mm -hmm. duck and cover as if that was going to save you.
1: And by the way, the political implications of that we haven't even talked about. So over the weekend I saw um, reports from a political rally in northeast Germany. Lots of Russian flags, people protesting um, the energy crisis against the energy crisis against inflation against all sorts of things and then expressing their sympathies for Russia and saying well what does the Ukraine war have to do with us and can't we open these pipelines properly and get Nord stream two on stream that was before of course they were bombed mm. <laughs> and you can see the polarization you can see that really fringe positions are now becoming quite widespread
2: yeah does that position continue to be tenable now like will they just keep imagining that somehow, if Germany rescinded support for Ukraine, that there wouldn't be an energy crisis this winter. That that option really seems gone, but I don't know whether people are thinking through things.
0: Well, it's a failure of political leadership, to my mind, that, that there isn't anyone who's really robustly making the case for why this war is so important to, you know, support
1: the Ukrainians in. It is scary, actually, to see what's happening politically. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll have state elections in Lower Saxony. That's a relatively large German federal state. The political rallies of the parties, especially those parties governing in Berlin, happen under a lot of police protection, even for the Greens, especially for the Greens. The Greens have the economics minister, whose job it is now to deal with the energy crisis, and the foreign minister who is pledging support to Ukraine, uh, rightly so. Well, the the Greens are now being accused of being the party of war. Mm. (laughs) And they have to run their rallies in their strongholds under police protection. It's 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 unbelievable. It's
0: unheard of in the the last few decades, isn't it, this kind of thing? Eric, you might be able to comment on what... The implications might be for New Zealand. I mean, obviously, we can't say for sure. As, as you've said, there's a lot of very unpredictable things at play here. But perhaps New Zealanders feel that we're insulated by distance. But there are some some problems coming our way.
2: In some respects, we are insulated by distance. Normally, we would lament that we are not integrated into global energy markets. That our natural gas resources are not available really for exports. That we aren't able to attract world prices there, or work through shortages so if taranaki basin is running a little low just pipe in a bit more gas we're too far away from the rest of the world for that to work well right now that means that we're decoupled from all of the messes going on in europe which is good (laughs) so we've got that small advantage but you've got the same kind of horrible mix of supply and demand factors coming through at the same time as we did during during covid lockdown right so we're demand for products from europe will go down in general because they're going to be poorer They will have higher demand for, I don't know if anybody's exporting candles to Europe, but maybe they'll do okay. New Zealand's agricultural production will do fine if other places are having bigger problems with fertilizer, although fertilizer ships a lot better than energy. But the supply side effects where sourcing parts and materials and inputs and all of those bits that go into everything that we make in a globalized economy, tracing through those potential fragilities I really hope that companies are checking through their supply chains that way to make sure that if Europe does hit those 10 times increases in energy prices that some of the futures markets are having in, that they will be able to continue to operate or that they have sourced supply from alternative suppliers. Like I've got no clue if uh, if Oliver ended up getting a stone through his windshield, whether uh, German car companies make use of Japanese windscreens or only of German ones. Do people make replacement ones that fit? german cars if they're not not from germany
1: i don't want to go through that again i had that a few years ago <laughs> and i had to import my windscreen from singapore
2: yeah but i don't know if it is made uh, in singapore I'm or whether sure. it came in from from
1: from europe the really annoying thing was actually when i took it to the glass repair shop um, i was asked well why don't you drive a corolla <laughs>
2: <laughs> potentially more resilient right uh, uh, it's easy to source <laughs> but just think about all the different air well uh, During lockdown, we were needing to bring in German experts to handle some German machines that were needed for some of our big infrastructure projects, right? Now, during lockdown, the problem is getting the engineers in. Come Germany collapsing this winter, if it goes to that, it's going to be other bits of industrial production and the parts and consumables that are necessary to keep things running here, right?
1: Mm. There's another way we can think about the whole crisis in Germany. I mean, I've been writing columns about Germany for a long time. Many columns in the last more than a decade were dedicated to Angela Merkel, and I was always one of her fiercest critics. And for me, for a long time, I thought that Merkel was the worst chancellor Germany had since 45, so basically ruining the country on every single front. Starting with energy, her crisis management during the euro crisis, then of course the mishandling of the refugee crisis in 2015, leading to a radicalization of the German political system, and. I mean, we could go on, running down of the German army, which we don't see as well. At the time when I wrote these columns, people said, are you exaggerating? And she is such a great, wonderful leader and the leader of the free world. And well, okay, I kind of strangely feel vindicated, of course, because now it's pretty obvious what her legacy is. Germany wouldn't have these problems had Merkel taken a different path on energy security, for example. Germany's army would be in a different state if Merkel had actually paid a bit more attention to it. And Germany wouldn't have never been that close to Russia if Merkel hadn't actually gone for that kind of relationship against the advice of Germany's neighbors to the east, especially the Baltic states and the Poles. And the Ukrainians, of course, shouldn't forget them. So we now see actually the result of 16 years of complete political and economic mismanagement in Germany, which many economists wrote about at the time. I wasn't the only one, but most people thought she's a wonderful leader. So why don't we take that as a story, a warning for us to learn, because I think we are seeing exactly the same policies on many fronts here. I mean, the, the obvious parallels, I think, in our energy system, we had a really good energy system until a few years ago. And I think we're in the process of me- repeating a lot of the German mistakes, where everything now has to be electrified and we are no longer happy with maybe just 85 or 86% renewable electricity has to be 100% it doesn't matter what it costs and we ignore the ets as the germans did we do all sorts of kind of fancy policies that make us feel good, but in the long run ruin a perfectly functional electricity system.
2: Yeah, I think people underappreciate the functioning of the electricity network that we have had, right? So mm. it's been neutral across modes of generation. People are encouraged to build new generation capacity of whatever sort when they expect that they can earn a commercial return on it. They could send their competitive bids into the electricity auction market. Retailers send their bids in for buying it that interface drives investment decisions. Now we have been hearing over the past couple of years about the uncertainty that's been thrown into the mix by the Lake Onslow project, right? So Mm -hmm. if you have a giant government player who's willing to blow billions of dollars on a project that isn't going to be able to wash its face, but is being done for other reasons, then that skews the economics of all kinds of other generation decisions. And people have mixed views about how that's going to pan out. Some Generators are still making new investments, thinking that they'll still be able to earn a buck on it. Others have refrained from making investments because they think that the whole thing is going to be too skewed by whatever happens at Lake Onslow. All of it throws security of supply at risk because you start getting generation investment decisions that are predicated on political guesses about what the government's going to be doing in supply, rather than on investors' best guesses about whether demand for electricity is going to be driving these choices. Now, I would like to see a few changes in there, like rather than pursuing Lake Onslow, it'd be pretty nice to have uh, maybe a little bit controversial why not make sure that it's really easy to build a nuclear power plant if somebody wants to do it? There's no reason that we shouldn't be able to. The small modular setups seem a lot, more, a lot safer than prior versions. You're not necessarily having this one giant plant that could be risky. You can have really small ones. Some of them even fit in shipping containers. You can have them a lot more distributed around where demand is for power. And don't stick it on the Alpine Fault, but there's plenty of places that aren't on the Alpine Fault, like Auckland. Right. Sure.
0: And it seems a good time to be thinking about the long-term future of, of energy production in, in this country. And there are some clear warnings, as you said, Oliver, from the European situation, things that sound good at the time and then have dire consequences later. One one of the things that is quite different, as you said before, Eric, is that we're not interconnected with our energy supply. So actually the consequences of failure would be even more dire because it's not just that we, like Germany, could buy some more electricity from France or...
1: Oh, oh no, no, no. Germans can't actually <laughs> buy electricity from France because France has its own energy crisis. Sure, yeah. In France, the nuclear reactors, a lot of them are actually out of action because they haven't been maintained properly. And then over the summer, France couldn't let them run because they didn't have enough water because there was a drought and didn't get enough water from the rivers. So France is actually at the moment importing electricity from Germany, which the Germans generate out of gas, which they don't have anymore. So it, the whole thing is a complete mess at yes. the moment in Europe. So, But uh, on the wider point, of course, yes, of course, they are all interconnected they can help each other out, which they do, mm. and which we couldn't even do here. So we really have to get our energy policy right because we've got no safety net. Yeah, And unfortunately, we are repeating all the Europeans' mistakes. I'm, I'm really angry for that reason. I mean... I'm not affected personally by what's happening in Europe, except I've got family and I've got friends in Europe and I I still feel a bit for the place where I grew up, of course. But what really annoys me is that we here don't even pay attention, don't learn. And actually, neither do the Germans. I mean, it took them months to discuss what to do about the nuclear power stations. It was a complete victory of ideology over realism and pragmatism. It is just bizarre following these discussions. I had a discussion actually with my parents just a few weeks ago and, and they see that because we talk about this all the time and they, they know what's going on and they asked me so how could we ever change this system back again and I said unfortunately I think what it really takes is a two week blackout for Germany because mm-hmm. otherwise y- your politicians will never wake up and the public will never wake up. Unfortunately it takes a complete disaster, a complete meltdown of this economy until the country finally wakes up because there is no lack of analysis. I mean, economists have been saying this for decades, that it's all going in the wrong direction. But it takes this complete disaster now for the Germans to finally wake up. And unfortunately, some of them are waking up in a completely wrong direction and take yep. really radical prescriptions now and go for all sorts of populist and extremist parties. And well, it's, that, that's a, totally it's right. a shocker.
0: That, that's right. That brings us to the to the other developments in Europe, which might again have implications for us here. That, as you said, the triumph of ideology over pragmatism and evidence and and this kind of thing leads in all sorts of directions that are highly unpredictable and volatile. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that a little bit. It's been going on for a long time. and It's arguably going on in New Zealand too. Where We're not at that point yet where populism has broken out and and is yielding real political instability, but we we are seeing it in Italy and and elsewhere in Europe too, arguably.
1: Yeah, we definitely see it in Italy. I mean, in Italy, the populism and the extremism and the constant swings and changes of government are part of the political culture. I mean, Italy is a bit of a special case anyway. I mean, Italy's had these... It hasn't had very stable politics for a long time. No, it hasn't had stable politics. Well, well, hmm. let me qualify that. After the war, of course, there was relative party political stability in Italy for a long time. You always had the Christian Democrats winning every election and then you had the Communist Party at the time in second place at every election and then you got a few other splinter parties and that's why the governments change all the time but the actual party political system was quite stable. That changed in the 1990s because they had massive corruption scandals which killed the Christian Democrats. So they went under. They were the dominant force for more than 40 years and they were completely gone after 1992, I think, was when they dissolved. The same happened on the left too. So you had the Communist Party. That dissolved after the end of communism and they morphed into some kind of center-left parties, social democratic parties, basically and what that meant for the political system was that you had a sequence of new parties forming and dying every few years starting with Forza Italia under Silvio Berlusconi who dominated the 1990s and early 2000s and then basically disappeared because he was a spent force and he didn't achieve any of the things that he promised and that was taken over by the next populist movement in response to the euro crisis that was the movement movimento cinque stelle that was started by a former comedian, Beppe Grillo, and suddenly came out of nowhere and became the dominant party for a few years. And after that, of course, came the Lega, which started as a regional party in North Italy, became even more radical, more populist. Then the Lega suddenly was the most popular party in the European Parliament election 2019. And now we have exactly the same phenomenon again. Now it's Fratelli d'Italia, a party that was only founded in I think it was 2013-14, got 2% at the last election, suddenly they're on 26 So it's a sequence, basically, where Italians frustrated by the state of their country because, I mean, I recently read total factor productivity hadn't increased, actually, for years. In fact, it's gone down 16% since 2000. And actually, industrial production is basically the same level that it was in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So this country has gone backwards on so many fronts. The introduction of the euro didn't work for Italy, and Italians every few years have tried a different party to fix the mess, but they can't because they're stuck in this corset of monetary union. The outcome of all of it is that Italy is really bankrupt. I mean, debt to GDP is around 150, 155%, so way higher than the Maastricht Treaty once prescribed. Italian um, debt yields have now gone up to 4.6% after the election of that new government. That used to be around one and a half, two 2% not so long ago try to in- increase your interest payments by two percentage points on 2.2 billion euros of debt. And you're talking about a substantial amount of money. And it's probably not the end of the story for Italy. So Italy is unstable. And at some stage, I think Italy will also go under because as an additional factor we haven't even talked about, this demographic change. By 2100, according to UN forecasts, Italy will be down to about 37 million people. Current population level is 60. And these will not just be 37 million Italians as they are today, but 37 million really old Italians. So this country, with its dead load, simply won't work. It won't function in the long run. They haven't found any solutions for that either. This is
0: actually a a problem that's going to afflict the entire world. Not the entire world, the Western Western world. world. Not not so much Africa, perhaps. In Africa,
1: it's the opposite problem. In Africa, the Democratic Republic of the Congo will be around 450 million people by 2,100. Nigeria will be about 550 million people, one of the most densely populated countries at the end of the century with about 800 persons per square kilometre. So you have these population giants in in Africa growing, and they are still quite poor. Italy and other European countries are collapsing at the same time. Well, let's predict what yeah. the outcome will be.
0: I do, I do think that the, the African projections are somewhat uncertain because it's Predicated on them continuing to be poor, it's entirely possible that prosperity will will improve there and that fertility will drop as a result. Fertility
1: uh, that, will drop there, even in the UN forecasts. I mean, the, the the fertility drop is already starting in Africa. You can see that, but it's got a yeah, long time to play out until that, it becomes true replacement and, level. But this
0: is this is a a, a a largely, at least by our political elites, unforeseen. Uh, wave coming of, of a permanently elderly population throughout the Western world and what the economic implications of that are. Uh, well, it's already, to be seen, it's already been
2: pointed to as one of the reasons for reduced economic dynamism, right? Yes, so right. companies tend to companies and new innovations tend to be coming from a younger cohort. With, once your median age starts getting up there, those, that sort
0: of thing becomes less likely. And especially
1: if these countries are already settled with debt,
0: you can't get out of that. So perhaps just as a as a a a final discussion point, the implications of of this Italian situation for us here in New Zealand. New Zealanders, you know, rightly think of New Zealand as being politically stable. We have been very politically stable for our entire history. Uh, Should we be nervous about a rising extremist politics?
1: I think we should really finish every conversation on something positive.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll answer this this question and then we'll go to something positive. Well, actually, the answer <laughs> to the
1: question might be something positive. So, actually, if you take a relatively um, self centered view here in New Zealand, ask what's best for New Zealand, there will be plenty of still plenty of young Italians, frustrated Italians, frustrated by their state by the state of their country, by their politics. By the dead lord that they have to service, which they can't. By the fact that Italy is basically dying out, whom we might offer a new home. Right. Why don't we say to them, well, actually, if you're frustrated by the state of Italy, we've got shortages in practically every industry in New Zealand, and I think Italians, by and large, are friendly, easy-to-integrate people. Why don't we open the doors?
0: Maybe we could take some young Germans as well.
1: Yeah, but they're harder to integrate. (laughs) 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 <laughs> uh, they, they speak this funny language, strange actions, and their kitchen sucks. Uh, Italians and are far better.
0: <laughs> and on that note, thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Eric. <laughs>
1: Pleasure.